with us this morning. Fill us with your spirit out And you may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us. I love that song and the truths about Jesus that we sing. And that's what we've gathered together to hear uh, about as we open up the Bible together this morning. I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible with you, to open it to the book of 1 Timothy, uh, continuing, uh, finishing out the first half of this series. As I mentioned earlier, we'll uh, stop 1 Timothy for a couple of weeks after uh, this morning and then continue it after the first of the new year. But we're going to read chapter 3 this morning. And so if you've got a Bible, please open it to 1 Timothy 3. I'd like to read through the passage of Scripture, uh, just sort of uninterrupted right now so that we can hear what God has to say. And then we'll back up and take a look at this. 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into, uh, into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is God's word for us this morning. Father God, would you open our eyes that we can behold wondrous things in your word for our good and your glory, we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by telling you the story of a church, Anytown Baptist, USA. This was a church that was older, uh, both in terms of its history and its average congregation uh, age. And finally, when a senior pastor retired, the church perceived an opportunity to change some direction, and so they hired a dynamic, much younger pastor full of charisma and energy, somebody who seemed to be able to draw people and create a movement, thinking this might bring revitalization to the church. And initial returns were actually very positive. For a couple of years, the church began to grow for the first time in decades. Uh, More people were showing up. Significantly younger people were showing up. Children's classrooms had people in them for the first time that anybody could remember. Uh, Life was good. There was a new energy. Um, There were some issues, naturally, some changes that this new pastor brought and ways he had of doing things, rubbed people wrong, but most people were able to tamp that stuff down, you know, for the greater good of seeing the church grow. Eventually, maybe more concerning problems kind of started to manifest themselves. There were rumors here and there of staff members that worked with this uh, senior pastor and maybe volunteers who were closer to him that he was sort of autocratic, 
uh, in his style. He didn't listen much. He was kind of overbearing and domineering. There might have even been some indications that he was using the church to sort of build his own platform rather than using uh, the church to build up Jesus Christ. And so eventually some of the elders of the church would pull him aside and have some conversations. We've heard some concerning things. Are things really okay between you and so-and-so? And oh, they, they would talk about it. Um, but the truth of the matter is, put yourself in the position of those elders, like nobody wants to be the one responsible to sink a boat that's finally taken off in the right direction, right? So those things were largely put to the side. Well, there's, there's conversations that are being had. Um, there's maybe a few rough edges, but we're basically fine. Unfortunately, eventually things came to a head. The pastor left um, as a conflict erupted in which he was clearly not going to be seen as the winner. That struck most of the congregation as out of the blue and quite a shock, and within the next few months, over half the congregation followed his suit and left the church. Budgets plummeted, cutbacks ensued, and layoffs were inevitable. To stabilize a now very painful situation, the elders realized, okay, we need a new senior pastor, but we, we better not make the same mistake we made last time. And so, as is so often the case, they went the opposite direction this time. There was an associate pastor that had been a part of the church for a long time. It predated the previous senior pastor who just left, kind of stayed through his whole tenure, and they decided to promote him to the level of senior pastor. Talked to him about it, he said, yeah, I'm in, I'll do it. Um, this, this felt like a good move. Um, after all, this guy's known right? He's, he's one of us, and right now we feel like our congregation, those that are left, need somebody that they can trust, somebody they don't think is going to turn tail and run, and this guy has a long history, so it felt like the right move. And since he's already one of us, he's already on our staff, the normal vetting process that you might put a senior pastor candidate through was largely bypassed. And things did seem to stabilize a little bit, but a year into his tenure, um, he started saying a few things on Sunday mornings that struck some of the members of the church as a little bit odd, like, really? That doesn't even sound like that's actually biblical, but maybe I just misunderstood him. But as time went on, more of those statements came out, and eventually they became not only more frequent, but more pronounced that he was teaching things that were not really lining up with what scripture says. And so, again, the elders finally pulled him aside and said, hey, we, we've, we're really concerned about some of the things you've been saying, and there's enough of a track record now. We, we need you to be teaching the Bible. Where are you at on this? hoping that he would clarify himself and, and maybe be more clear about his language when he taught. Unfortunately, they encountered someone who was wholly unrepentant. Uh, he flat out said that he thought much of the Bible was kind of older and we're in a new world and we need to rethink some of Scripture's teachings. And he was frankly surprised at his fellow elders for being so narrow-minded as to actually believe that a 2,000-year-old book can guide modern people without some sense of nuance. And when it became clear that they were not going to see eye to eye, this new senior pastor, too, left. That probably turned out to be one blow too many for a church that was already hurting. And so after he resigned under protest and left, what remained of the church congregation looked at their options and simply decided to close the church doors. The remaining sheep scattered, some to other churches, some nobody knows where. They're not even probably going to church anymore. All of them were wounded. It's a sad story, isn't it? And it's fictional, kinda. <laughs> Some of you are going, how can you be kinda fictional? <laughs> it's like either not true or it is true. Here's, here's what I mean when I say it's fictional, kind of. It is a fictional story in that any town Baptist church doesn't exist, and so I didn't just tell you the actual history of an actual congregation. 
Um, but it's, the reason I say kind of fictional is that it's a story I made up, but I made it up and built the entire story. Every single piece of it is not fictional. It's actually real, and it's happened to many churches that I've personally known of and witnessed, and it happens right now in churches all over this land. Uh, the details are different from one congregation to the next for sure, but many of the dynamics of the story I just told you are the very real experience of very real church congregations right here in our own city, past, present, and unfortunately, very likely, in the future. And if you personally have seen or experienced a situation that bears any resemblance to what I just described, and I know many of you well enough to know a lot of you have the details were probably pretty different, but you're like, yeah, boy, this is bringing up uncomfortable memories. If that's you, then you know how important a topic church leadership is for a church congregation to discuss, which is important because church leadership is not exactly the most exciting topic in and of itself, right? It's like one of those classes in college that you're like, oh, it's a required class. I have to take that one just to get to my degree so that I can go take the classes I'm actually interested in, you know, and you just gut through this thing that the, the college makes you take, and that, oh man, as soon as that's over, like, we're done. I'll never forget all the engineers that were in my sophomore physics class in high school, in, in uh, college, and the day of the final of the last physics class for engineers, there was like 200 people in this auditorium, and the prof says, time's up, and this guy in the back shouts, no more physics! And like 40 people in the room started clapping, you know, it's just like, you have to do this, you know. And when you talk about church leadership and membership, the, the word that we use for that is polity, polity. So how does a church organize itself? And let's be honest, like even the word sounds boring. Really? That sounds like a college class, polity. Well, that's exciting. Honey, get out of bed, get the kids ready. They're talking about polity at church this morning. Probably not the response most of us have, and I understand that. It doesn't really strike us initially as something that's super exciting to talk about. Um, we often don't think polity is an interesting subject until something blows up, until something goes wrong. And then we wonder like, well, how did that decision get made? How did that core commitment get drifted away from and why wasn't somebody in place to stop that from happening? And of course, by the time we're asking those questions, it's often too late to do anything about it. And that's partly why we at Harvest here, um, just to be honest, I many of you know this, if you're new to our church, we'll just kind of lay our cards out, all out on the table. Um, polity is kind of important to us, even though it's not a fun-sounding word necessarily. But like doing as good a job as we can at church leadership and membership is a high value here. Like We, we talk about that stuff a lot, and, and we try to actually do it too, not just talk about it. And I think we recognize that that makes us somewhat distinctive among churches in the Portland area. Not unique, thankfully. There are other churches that take these issues seriously as well. Uh, but I'm, I'm in real close contact with lots of other pastors and lots of other congregations that are deeply committed to the Bible as the Word of God and deeply committed to, God, committed to the gospel. And we love those congregations and those brothers and sisters in Christ. But we just recognize that we're probably a little bit distinctive here at Harvest in talking so much about church leadership and church membership. But I I guess what I hope to accomplish this morning as we look at 1 Timothy 3 is that every one of us would walk out of here knowing why. Because there is a reason. And it's not just because Harvest happens to be made up of a bunch of people who are just like organizational managers for a living. <laughs> and so like that's the world we all live in and that's just kind of the church we are because actually most of us involved in leadership here at Harvest are not organizational leaders professionally. The reason is, is a theological commitment and it's really at the heart of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
And so I hope to actually not only, but you, you leave not only understanding why that's a big deal here, but my, my real hope, my real prayer is that you would share that as a value. Because you see, if you're a Christian, you should care about church polity too. If you're a Christian, you should care about church polity too. And not just to avoid a shipwreck, although that's a good reason, but actually for a much greater purpose than that. I put it this way. If you love Jesus and care about his glory being seen as ultimately beautiful in our community, you love Jesus and you want other people to see the glory of the gospel too, then you should care about church polity. Now, if I just did mental whiplash on you, and like, whoa, I did not see the connection between those two statements, just bear with me, <laughs> and for the next little while, hopefully you'll see the connection in the Bible. The reason I think there's a connection there, I'll just kind of lay out the whole point of the sermon right now at the beginning, which is always dangerous, because then you can just tune out the rest of the time, right? Um, but no, we're going to just, I'll just tell you what it is I think we're going to say, and then we'll go into the Bible, hopefully, and see it there. Here's the main point. Biblical church leadership is a powerful vaccine against the disease of self-will that threatens to infect every church, including ours. That's so important, let me just say it again. Biblical church leadership is a powerful vaccine against the disease of self-will that threatens to infect every church and ours is no exception. I would love to think that we're spiritually mature enough and committed enough to the Bible that we're just probably not going to fall for all that self-will stuff, but that's not true. We are no more immune to this than any other congregation. And so how do we inoculate our church against self-will where we're putting ourselves up on the pedestal instead of Jesus? The Bible actually presents biblical church leadership as an example. That's what hit me as I was reading 1 Timothy um, this week. One of the benefits of reading uh, books of the Bible from start to finish, which is the normal way that we preach and teach the Bible here at Harvest, is that you catch sort of the flow of thought. Uh, today's text is one, if you're a Christian, you've been around churches before, you've probably read this list of qualifications of elders and deacons before. Um, it's one of the texts in the Bible I kind of refer to as an encyclopedia text. I mean, we would never call it that, but that's how we use it. Like, it's, it's on your shelf for reference, and the time you need it, you can go look it up, like an entry in an encyclopedia. Like, maybe it's like, oh, it's time for us to choose a new church leader. What should we be looking for? Oh, I remember the Bible says something about that. So you go to 1 Timothy 3, or the parallel passage in the book of Titus, and you read these list of elder qualifications, and you go, oh, that's what we should be looking for. And so we, we sort of use it as a reference tool, um, which is actually really good. That's exactly what we should be doing with this text. That's why it's in the Bible. So doing that is good. It's just that we're kind of handling it like an encyclopedia, like it's a, a separate fact of information that's just there to be referred to when needed, but it's not really connected with anything else around it. Now, most of us wouldn't say that that's what we believe, but that's kind of how we treat it. And so reading 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the flow of all of 1 Timothy, I think has actually given me personally this week a new appreciation for why these qualifications are coming up right now at this point in this book of Scripture in the life of this church. In other words, reading it within the flow of thought, you get not only what a good church leader is, which you can get without the context just by reading the passage, but you get much greater sense of why good church leadership matters. And that's what I want to help us see this morning. I'd set that context simply this way. The way that the office of elder is presented within the flow of thought of the book is that it is an antidote to the reckless, self-willed, self-glorifying behavior that the book has been taking this church to, account, uh, to task for since the beginning. 
Biblical church elders are an antidote, a powerful antidote to the very problems that the Apostle Paul has been addressing in chapters 1 and 2. And that's what you see in chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, if anybody aspires to the office of elder, that's what he starts talking about. We'll talk about what that means here in just a second. If anybody aspires to that office, he aspires or desires a noble thing. In other words, like it's a high calling. This is valuable. This is a big deal, this office. And he presents it within the context of having taken some false teachers into account. You'll recall, just briefly, um, in chapter 1, we saw that there were bad elders in the church. Uh, These guys were either the literal elders, or at least they were certainly trying to be the elders, and they were teaching the Bible and saying, thus saith the Lord, and therefore this is who we are and who we ought to be. So it was that combination of teaching and authoritative uh, work to determine who we are as a church. That's the role of elders, and that's what these false teachers in chapter 1 were doing. Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who's writing 1 Timothy, takes them to task, both because they taught incorrect things, their doctrine was wrong, but also because their motives were uh, modeling a lifestyle of selfish ambition for the church. So that was chapter one. He says, we've got a problem there at the teaching and authority level, at the elder level. And then in chapter two, unfortunately, we saw that the problem in the church in Ephesus in the first century wasn't just limited to the elders. Um, they were starting to spread the infection of selfish ambition throughout the Ephesian church by their own bad example. So we saw men in the church who were becoming overly gruff and argumentative, just like these false teachers were following their example and seeking position for themselves. We saw women in the church who were becoming overly demonstrative and unhealthily self-assertive in seeking position. And these are all the things that he takes to kind of to task in chapter two. And so he's correcting the behaviors of the church congregation. But all of this was coming from these elders. And so you see, that's where chapter 3 starts with this statement about how the office of elder is a high calling. It's an important calling because of its influence. It's an important calling because of its influence. The elders in a local church, uh, whoever occupies that role, whether they have the title elder or not, somebody's going to be in that role. And whoever they are, they set the tone for the church. Um, they, they, they model what a gospel-shaped life looks like by what they say and by how they live. Bad elders have a corrosive effect on a church's gospel witness. And that makes a lot of sense because uh, we've seen in the whole book of 1 Timothy, the message is simply this. That what a church believes determines how that church behaves. And the way a church behaves determines who the world Beholds, 1 Timothy 3.15, the purpose statement of the book says that the church is like a pillar or foundation or buttress, a support for the truth. And the truth being referred to there is the truth of the gospel of Jesus. A church is an organization of redeemed people that puts Jesus on display, yes, by what we say and how we speak, but also by how we live together. When we embody the truths of the gospel, it puts Jesus on display. That's what we're supposed to be. And that's where this whole like church leadership polity thing fits in. Because in the first two chapters, he's been taking on bad behavior. That's not putting Jesus on display, but it's putting themselves on display. Everybody's seeking their own position, seeking to get their own needs met, not seeking to glorify Jesus Christ. And here he's saying the bad behavior is coming from bad teaching, which is ultimately coming from bad leaders. And so in this way, bad elders can have a corrosive effect on a local church's gospel witness. But good elders, on the other hand, are a healthy corrective to bad church practice. I'd like to be able to say good elders are a silver bullet that fixes all the problems in a church, but of course we all know that that's not true. Uh, This is not a silver bullet, so just one word of balance here before we dive into our text this morning. Um, Biblical church leadership is not being presented as a one-size-all-fix-everything solution. 
because even vaccines sometimes don't prevent somebody from getting ill. It's not a panacea, but it is a powerful vaccine, if I can press that analogy a little bit, to inject into the bloodstream of a church to help inoculate a congregation against the natural tendency we all have towards self-will. Godly elders help us avoid that as a church. And here's the great thing about this vaccine. There's no goofy articles and funny side effects. You can take this vaccine without fear. So here's the question for the day. How can we, as church members, this is for like all of us. This isn't just for people who are currently serving as elders in our church. How can we as church members help vaccinate our local church against doctrinal drift, the idolatry of self, and a host of other ills? How can we best do that if we're interested in doing that? And I hope you are. The bottom line for today, choose godly leaders. Choose godly leaders. That's probably not the only thing we do, but it's one of the main things that we do to prevent our church from going off the rails. A congregation that cares about putting Jesus on display will care about the office of elder. Let me just say one quick word before we dive into the text um, that will help us understand, I think, what we're about to encounter. Uh, the, the Bible passage that we just read talks about um, two different offices, and, and it uses some Bible words for them. One is the office of elder, the other is the office of deacon. This passage does not tell you what elders and deacons do. We sort of find that out by looking at other passages in Scripture. This passage is about who elders and deacons are. And so because we're going to follow the Bible, that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But I'm just aware before we dive into that that not everybody has the same idea of what an elder or a deacon is. And so I want to just briefly um, give a really high-level basic definition of what we're talking about here that will help us kind of work through the Bible text, which is important because... Like if you don't have a church background, or for some of us, even if you do, you came from churches that, that never used this kind of language, and so you're like, I, I don't know what, I've, like I've never even heard elder deacon, like what is, what is that? Even if you've been to church, sometimes that's true. And others of us have come from church backgrounds that maybe used these words, there were people called elders and maybe people in your church called deacons, but they, not all churches use the words exactly the same way, so we can have different ideas about what an elder or a deacon is. And so, at just a high level, I want to kind of say brief, briefly, this is sort of what the Bible is presenting, and that will help us be able to get into the text of Scripture. First of all, elders, in brief, are a group, almost always a group, whenever possible, never one single person. They're a group of men, and we talked about that, why this is a role that men play in the life of a church last week. And I know if you're here for the first time, you missed last week's sermon, you're like, well, wait a minute, that sounds like anti-woman or something, and what's going on there? We actually talked about that a lot last Sunday. I don't have time to re-preach that sermon this morning, but it is on our website at harvestcc.org. And it's important, I think, to understand what the Bible is getting at there and, and what's driving that whole distinction. Um, so I feel awkward, but I just have to leave that there and say, go back and listen to last week's sermon. Talk to us if you have questions. We love to talk about this stuff, okay? For today, I have to just press on, okay? What are the elders? The elders are a group of men chosen from within a local church that basically do what? They lead the church in four major ways. Through teaching, the authoritative teaching of God's word, through prayer, through um, oversight or leadership that is setting high-level direction and assessing where the church is at, and then lastly, through modeling a godly Christian life. In a nutshell, that's what the elders are and what they do. We've unpacked that in the past here at Harvest. We probably will again in the future. For right now, I just need to move on. Uh, let me just say that Harvest currently has six elders, if you're interested. Uh, one of them is on our paid staff. That is moi. Uh, the other five are volunteers from members of our congregation. They're not paid. They're just serving uh, out of love for God in this high calling. Uh, we meet twice a month, uh, usually for three hours at a shot. 
So we invest significant time into elder meetings, and during those meetings, we're praying for our members by name. If you're a member of this church, you're on a list, you get prayed for by our elders, whether you ask for it or not. Uh, We're going to pray for you. We think about direction. Uh, We deliberate on decisions uh, that have to be... um, made for, uh, for the church and all those kinds of things. And that's in addition to the time that all those guys just spend leading small groups and teaching classes and caring for people so it's not all just restricted to the meetings. Anyway, that's a little window into elders. What is a deacon? Really high level. It's a broader office. Deacons are people chosen to lead the church in doing ministry. That's the main distinction I think I want to make this morning. The elders are doing the high-level direction and teaching. The deacons are like the implementers, okay? Deacons don't meet together as a group because they're not a deliberative body. That's what the elders are for. Deacons are people from within the church, uh, men and women, we'll address that in just a moment, who take leadership of um, organizing and, and planning and implementing, which frees the elders to be able to stay focused on studying the word, preaching, prayer, and high-level direction and vision. So the two offices work really well together. That's really high-level and basic, and I think that's pretty clearly what we get in Scripture. How a church fleshes that out can start to look a little different from one church to the next, but that's probably enough for this morning. I will just mention briefly that Harvest currently has no one that bears the title of deacon, although we have a lot of people who serve in those kinds of roles because you can't function as a church without them. A lot of them are on our paid staff. Many of them are volunteer. And if you are in one of those leadership roles helping us do ministry, man, thank you so much because you do excellent work. Everything that people see visibly about our church, almost everything is the result of the leadership of people in doing this kind of work. And one of the things the elders are exploring right now is how and where a greater emphasis on this role of deacon may be helpful in helping us as a church do even better and do more and more effective ministry. But that's a discussion for another day. Quick high-level look at elders and deacons, okay? Now, that sets us up for our passage this morning in 1 Timothy. Because Paul's already said, if you want to be an elder, you're desiring a high and noble task. So here's now the qualities. He doesn't talk so much about what elders do. He says, here's the kind of person that you're looking for. And what follows in the next six verses, verses two through seven, is he's describing for Timothy, this young protege who he's left to kind of clean up the, the mess in the church at Ephesus, get rid of these ungodly false teacher elder guys and replace them with some people that are much more qualified for the task. And who are those people? Well, he gives quite a list of qualifications. For the sake of time this morning, we're going to summarize them into a couple of key headings. First of all, is the overview um, sense of being above reproach. That's the very first uh, phrase that describes the kind of person you're looking for when you're looking for elders. Someone who's above reproach, and then later in verse 2, it also refers to them as respectable. It's just kind of a general, broad overview term. Um, We're looking for people that are known as being trustworthy people. This is not the kind of person that someone can likely bring a pretty solid accusation of misconduct against. You're not looking for perfect people, but you're looking for people who demonstrate a gospel-shaped character by simply being known far and wide as trustworthy people. Interestingly, he also uses several qualifications to point out that the home life, if a man has one, is a phenomenal like little Petri dish that you can zoom in on with your microscope and kind of see how the guy's heart works. Because the way he interacts with his wife, if he has one, if he's married, or his kids, if he's a father, is going to say a lot about who he is as a leader. Um, That's the logic of all of these family-oriented qualifications that he states very explicitly in verse um, 5. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so the idea here is that if a prospective elder is married, you look at the way that he interacts with his wife, 
And for a man who's dedicated to his wife, if he is married, that shows a long-term ability to commit um, to a relationship, to a person, and to work things out because stuff comes up in marriage and you have to work it out. Some people can do that well and some people can't. And guess what? If a guy can't work things out well with his wife, what do you think is going to happen when you make him an elder in the church and then there's a conflict in the church? Is he going to stay or is he going to cut and run? Probably not the kind of guy you want serving as an elder. That's, that's the basic kind of logic here. That's the reason given. Uh, same thing is true of the parenting uh, relationship. If he's a father and he has children, like, does, is he a good dad to his kids? Is he like overbearing on the one hand where it's like all authority and all high control and I'm so intent on protecting my kids that I, I neck them down and squeeze them out and suffocate them and I'm always making them obey me? Guess what happens if you make that guy an elder? How's he gonna treat members of the church? What are you doing? Why? He's going to be overbearing and harsh, just like he is at home. The opposite could be true, too. If he's a passive dad, if it's like, yeah, whatever, kid. I mean, dad, I don't care what you think. Well, whatever. See how well that works for you. I don't care. I'm just going to go watch the game. Like, he's not involved in his kids' lives, and he's just kind of letting them do whatever, and you make a guy an elder in the church, guess what's going to happen? Hey, here's a need over here. Here's a problem. He's going to, yeah, well, hopefully that kind of takes care of itself. I mean, that's just who he is, right? He's shown that at home. So the home life is a fabulous indicator of how this guy connects with, leads, and cares for people. So you look at his home life, that's the idea. Let me just mention here, but I could preach a whole sermon on this stuff. I'll just say here, I don't think that this is a strict prohibition on single men serving as elders. Hopefully you've already seen the flow of thought. It has nothing to do with it. Like if a guy's not married or if he doesn't have kids, he's not qualified to be an elder. That's, that's clearly not the idea. Most men would have been married and, and had kids, and so he's simply saying, look at the home life, okay? First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, the same author, Paul, actually upholds the single life for both men and women Christians as being incredibly fruitful and freeing up incredible opportunities for kingdom work and ministry. So there's not the sense that like you have to be somehow married to be a church elder, uh, nor do I understand that to be a st- a strict prohibition on previously divorced men in all cases serving as elders. Those are all just things that you want to look at as a church because I think the thrust of the passage is look at a man's home life and what does that tell you about his character and how he'll lead. He's also described as somebody who's supposed to be sober-minded and self-controlled, verse 2 again. Um, I love those languages. It's just a man that's, that's like self-aware. <laughs> that's the idea sober-minded. Somebody who's got like a realistic appraisal of his own limitations. Uh, and, and consequently, he's self-controlled. Like he's, he's realistic enough about his own vulnerabilities to temptation so that sin doesn't get a foothold in his life. He knows how to bridle himself. Um, there's some negatives to this that, that flesh it out even more listed in verse 3. Somebody who's not addicted to alcohol or addicted to anger and aggression and the need to be right. You know, I'm just argumentative. That's just who I am. Ha, ha, ha. Well, that's not really funny if you're an elder. <laughs> you can't just need to be right all the time. That's, that's not the right way to do it. Um, and also not addicted to money and possessions and wealth, which is a recurring theme through the book of First Timothy. A man, we're all tempted toward those things, but a man who's a good elder candidate, somebody who doesn't want to bridle himself enough that those, those things don't get a foothold in his life. It doesn't mean he doesn't have money or he never takes a drink. It means he's not a slave to these things, right? Because all these things will cause him to set a bad example for the rest of the church if they're true. Fourth, he needs to be able to teach. This is the one unique one I had to point out specifically because many other people have pointed out before, rightly so, that this is the only item on the list that's not a character quality, it's a competency. It's an ability. 
almost everything else on this list is things that have to be true of a church leader by virtue of who he is, not necessarily what he is able to do. This is the only exception. He has to be able to teach, and that obviously means teach the Bible well. And we've already seen in the way we define elders why that's so important. Because it's absolutely essential to the task of being an elder to teach the word of God to the congregation and say, because this is what it says, and handle that rightly, this is therefore who we are and where we're headed. So the idea of being able to teach means he's skilled at correctly interpreting the Bible, on the one hand, and applying it to the real-life situations of people, on the other hand. Both are skills. Both can be learned and developed and grow. Both are absolutely essential for a man to be an elder. Note, this does not refer to public speaking ability. An elder doesn't have to be somebody who is wonderfully articulate. Actually, some wonderfully articulate people can be horrible elders if they're just proud of themselves and they're using it for their own platform. It doesn't necessarily mean that an elder has to be up front of the church preaching like I'm doing right now, although this is a perfectly obvious way that elders lead the church through the teaching of the word, but it also happens in one-on-one interactions and small groups and teaching small classes and and a host of other um, contexts in which some guys really shine who wouldn't necessarily be great public speakers, but an elder has to be able to handle God's word well and apply it well to the life of the people in the church because that's so much of what elders spend their time doing. He rounds out the list with two final things. One, that the person not be a new Christian, a recent convert, um, to guard against a potential arrogance problem, verse six. And then lastly, in verse seven, interestingly, they need to have a good reputation with outsiders, uh, people who are not in the church. Um, Not somebody who's likely to get caught up in some scandal or pattern of behavior that leads people to not trust him and therefore to not trust his Jesus. And this is pretty self-evident when you start thinking about it. I mean, imagine like the guy who's part of his church for many, many years, and people say, oh, oh, there's old Bill. Bill's a faithful guy, a great guy. Maybe he should be an elder. But, but Bill's like the one guy at his, his office at work that's always showing up late and leaving early. We all know those people, right? Always stretching the coffee break out into a lunch break and the lunch break out into a I don't know. <laughs> Um, you know, he's the kind of guy where like, oh, the new project comes down the pipe and a work team gets put together and everybody goes, oh no, Bill's on our team. And they all kind of like internally just moan because they know he's not going to carry his weight, right? He's like, if that's the kind of guy, like he's not, I don't know, cheating on his wife or killing people or doing anything horrible, but the Bible's saying if that's the kind of guy that he's known to be outside the church, don't make him an elder in the church because that bears horribly on the reputation of Jesus Christ. Not to mention saying some things possibly about his character. So at a very high-level view, he's like, this is the kind of person you're looking for, church, to help inoculate your church against the temptation to self-will. This tells us the kind of thing that should take priority when elders are selected, not some of the things that often take priority. I'm grateful that we've not really had an issue with what I'm about to say next so much here at Harvest. We just always have to be vigilant against it. But in some churches, you get legacy elders, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Like, well, there's, there's this hypothetical Bill. I, I keep using the word Bill. I don't have anybody in mind. Offense, apologies to anybody named Bill. I'm not referring to anybody. Like, here's this guy, and like, well, his great-grandfather was like the founding senior pastor of this church, and his dad served as an elder in this church for 30 years, and now he's 25 years old, so it's about time that he gets his turn. It's, whoa, stop. <laughs> in the biblical view, nobody gets a turn. This is not about legacy. This is not about who's been at the church the longest or who gives the, to the church the most financially or, well, we, we, we've been nowhere without that family's financial support. We better take the patriarch of the family and make him an elder because, you know, money buys influence. No! Not in the church of Jesus Christ. That's not how this is to work. 
You're looking for a kind of people, not for legacy or influence. By the way, you're also not necessarily looking for guys who are skilled leaders in business or in other settings outside the church. Man, look at that guy. He's been a professional manager very successfully all his career. This guy started and launched and successfully sold three uh, startups, a real entrepreneur. Man, this guy really knows his stuff when it comes to leadership. So we should make him an elder. Eh, maybe. Maybe. But I don't really care how many startups he has. I'm interested in this list of qualifications. That's what the Bible's trying to get us to say. It's not about a person's ability as much as it's about who they are because they need to, elders need to have exemplary Christian lifestyles. They need to value the office, love Christ and his church, and serve as examples to the flock. Well, just a brief word about deacons before we wrap this up and kind of land the plan on, like, what do we do with this personally? Um, what makes a good deacon comes next in verses 8 down to uh, 13. And it starts off by saying, deacons likewise. <laughs> I love that word likewise because the, that's the first key to saying what makes you a deacon is pretty much the same thing as what makes a good elder. You're looking for this same kind of character qualification. So the deacon list is a little bit shorter and it sounds really familiar when you start reading it. I won't read through the whole thing. Let me just point out a couple of the similarities to what we've just read on the list of elder qualifications. Uh, it talks about prohibiting alcohol and money addictions just like it did for elders for the exact same reasons. It talks about a deacon needs to be somebody who's dignified. Um, that's, again, it's, it's a high-level word that's essentially a synonym. It's to, to the word respectable um, or above reproach that was listed up above. This just needs to be somebody that, that's known to be trustworthy. Um, and by the way, the, in verse 12, the home life requirement is there as well. If there's a marriage and a parenting relationship, you look at that when you're looking to put people in charge of uh, organizing and implementing ministries within your church for the same reasons. How they interact with their family relationships is going to show you a lot about how they're going to interact with church relationships. So most of it is the same. There are a couple of differences between the two lists. First is the idea that nowhere is it said that a deacon needs to be able to teach, where it specifically says that needs to be true of an elder. There's only one competency requirement for elders, the rest of it's character. There's no competency requirements for deacons. It's all character. Why is that? We've already seen that. Because teaching the Bible and saying this is who, we're go who we are and where we're going is not really what deacons are for. That's what elders are for, so they need to be good at that. Deacons are the ones who mobilize people to go get ministry done, following the vision that's been set in the church. So the need to be able to teach is not there. Also need to point out in verse 11, it's worded in a very interesting way that kind of breaks the whole flow of how this narrative functions. I'll just read it here out of the ESV. The NIV translation is virtually the same. Uh, my English translation says, their wives, referring to the deacon's wives, must also dot, 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 and it lists some character qualities. Um, I'll just point out, you, if, if that's what your Bible says, and it probably says that or something very similar to that, you'll also notice there's a footnote or a marginal note there somewhere. And down in that footnote or in the margin, it, it tells you what the literal reading is that the translators have translated their wives. The actual reading is, the women likewise must be dot, dot, dot. So there's a bit of an interpretive issue there that Bible translators are wrestling with. We're under the, talking under the heading of deacons, and so the women what? Well, there's one of two possibilities. The women of the deacons, meaning their wives, which is how the English translators took it most times, or the women who are deacons, meaning this is an office that's open to men, open to women, doesn't matter. Unlike elders, deacons can be either men or women. I don't have time to do the exegetical work today to kind of show you 
where all of this comes out. But my overall sense from just thinking about this for a long time is in light of the fact that uh, women are prominent in New Testament churches all over the New Testament in leadership, um, in light of the fact that uh, we have actually a woman in Romans 16 who's called out by name, Phoebe, and she's referred to as a deacon in her own local church. And for several other reasons, it seems like there's no reason to understand that women can't serve as deacons too. Um, that's one another difference between elders uh, and deacons. Lastly, it also uh, doesn't require that they're not, they not be a new convert. New Christians may be good deacons, possibly. Um, there's a lot of vetting that needs to take place, just like before, and there's character qualities that have to be matched up here. But since the purpose of the office is not to interpret the Bible and talk about where we're going and who we are, the purpose of the office is to say, great, let's go there, then it may be that people who are, have less grounding in the scriptures but who are still Christians and who have good character can still fill that office and maybe not have been Christian so long. The deacon office is just open to all sorts of people to come and use their gifts in ministry, <clears throat> excuse me, with appropriate vetting processes. All right, that was a lot of rapid fire information because the list is just full of little staccato information. I want to take the couple minutes we have left and just pull back and try to digest this a little bit. <sighs> what are we just supposed to do with all that? And what I'd like to do is go back to where we started. In all of this, the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy to lead the church in selecting good church leaders, elders and deacons. And good is defined as those who will set the example of exalting Christ by their own lifestyles and by having a lifestyle that joyfully submits to everything God has taught. If you're the kind of person where it's like, man, I just, whatever I understand God to say, I trust him fully and I delight to submit to it. Like, I mean, I could be wrong and I'm open to correction, but if I understand God right, I'm happy to submit to what he has for me. And you actually live a lifestyle where people come to know you that way, that's the kind of person that you're looking at for church leadership offices. Not legacy, not ability, not impressiveness, not some of these other things that sometimes we're tempted to look at. And here's why this is so important. Because it helps vaccinate a church against the virus of self-will that just so naturally seeps into all of our experience. It helps us make, be healthy as a church and put Jesus up on a pedestal rather than ourselves. And one of the best ways we can do that as a church is to choose good church leaders. Choosing elders and deacons is simply one of the most important things our members do. I really believe that, so if you'll bear with me, let me say that again. Choosing elders and deacons is simply one of the most important things, people that fill those roles, one of the most important things that we can do. To be a church for the long term that stays faithful to Christ and puts him on display. So what does that mean for you and I? Well, for one thing, it means, I think, if you're a Christian and this is your home church, um, could I be so bold as to suggest that you join the church? Somebody's like, oh no, he's going to beat that dead horse again. I promise I won't kill the horse. But yeah, I'm going to kind of beat it again. Um, no, and I'm kidding. I'm not actually apologetic about it. I, like become, if you're a Christian and this is your home church, become a formal member so that you can help us, among other things, actively seek leaders for this congregation. Like this is just too important a task to just leave it to other people and hope it goes well. Like be part of that. Be a part of that process. And you do that by becoming a formal member. Now, I recognize that when I say that, uh, we have uh, so many people in our church who are kind of what I sometimes refer to as informal members. 
Like you're, you're people that have been part of this church for a long time. You're faithful, you give, you serve. Like without you, we wouldn't be here. I mean, you're doing all the things that members do. And if you actually read the membership covenant and what you commit to do as a member, we have so many people in church that have been doing those things for years without being members. And that's largely because we haven't made a huge deal out of being formal church members until just the last couple of years. So we recognize that like we're still in process with this whole thing and that's, that's totally fine. This is just an opportunity to encourage you. If, if you're in that boat, like you're a Christian, you're like, I think this is my home church, and, and I've thought that way for a long time, and, and maybe I even give, and I invest, and I serve, and I volunteer, and I connect with people, I do all the things that members do, but I've never formally joined the church. I would encourage you to take that step. I love the fact that, gosh, for the last couple of years, every time we've introduced new members at our family gatherings, it's been a really mixed group of people that are really new to Harvest, and people that have been around for a long time saying, yeah, I'm going to join the church formally now, and I just, I love that, and I so appreciate their willingness to step into that. I mean, it may well be that if you have some kind of a, um, a challenge or, or something about that, that that's holding you back, maybe it feels awkward or, or maybe you disagree about something or whatever, I just really want to invite you to get in touch with one of the elders and like, let's just get together and talk about it. It's non-threatening, it's no big deal. We just, we really want to hear there may be an aspect of what we're doing that's coming across to some people differently than we're aware of and you can clue us into that and we'll do better. That's really helpful for us to know. Or maybe that there's some sort of, you know, sense of like, oh, if I become a formal member, am I like invalidating all my past work or whatever? Maybe it just feels awkward for some other reason. And we just want to say, like, it's not. This is just who we are as a church and where we are as a church. My encouragement is just not to leave the important task of choosing church leaders to other people. Um, if, if this is your team, then suit up and take some snaps. Help us score so that Jesus Christ wins. Secondly, Pray for your elders. Pray for your church leaders. Pray for our ministry staff and other volunteers that are in key leadership positions. Because the whole, the whole point, the whole like thrust of this text, the whole flow of thought is choosing church leaders is important because of their influence. This is a high and noble calling. And that means that there are people who are serving in ministry roles here who have a little bit of an outsized influence, not because of who they are, but because of the position they hold. And sometimes we don't even realize the influence we have. A lot of times people think, oh, I'm not an influencer. You know, it's just the guy preaching on a Sunday morning who is, and that's actually not true. Many of us have roles of, of influential leadership in this church, and we feel like, gosh, I, I'm not up to that. And, and we're right. <laughs> we're right. We're not up to it. I'm not up to this either because I'm a sinner, and so is every other leader in this church. And Satan can use that. People can mess up. And yeah, there's room for grace and forgiveness, but man, like we need God's help to do this well is what I'm getting at. Uh, we really need God's help to do this well. And the more you get to know us, the more you'll realize that we need God's help to do this well. <laughs> we pray for you regularly if you're a member of this church. And we are just desperate for you to pray for us too. So we would love it if you would do that. Father God, I thank you so much for the joy of being part of your family, for getting to be part of a group of people that puts you on display with all of our faults and our inabilities and our hang-ups and our letdowns, and the list can just go on and on, and yet you have privileged us to not only choose us from among people for redemption and salvation to be part of your family, but to choose us and to be members of a church, and to choose some of us to be leaders in the church, at least for a time. And God, these are high and holy callings, 
We don't do them because we take them for, uh, for granted. We do them because we love you. But we also don't shirk them and ignore them just because they're high callings, because we recognize somebody's got to do it and your name needs to be glorified. And so God, I just pray for all the leaders in this church. Current, would you help every one of us be men and women who are desperate for your glory more than for our own position? And would you help us be humble and sensitive and open to communication and even critique where it's helpful and that we would be able to connect heart to heart with people here and thus model what it means to put Jesus on display and how we love each other. I pray for future elders in this congregation, people that are sitting here and maybe before this morning they've never even thought about serving as a leader in the church because it's always just easier to assume somebody else is gonna take care of that. But there's never just a somebody else. It's always people that step up faithfully. And you may have that in the hearts of people here. And so I pray that you would plant those seeds and water those seeds and reform our character and increase our dependence on your spirit that we would become the kind of men and women who are worthy of being church leaders, not because we're great, but because we simply depend on you and can lead others to do the same. So God, would you keep us from error doctrinally as a church? Would you keep us from being all about ourselves, which every one of us is tempted to do? and increase our passion for your glory through good church leadership and through the studying and honoring of your word and the presence of your spirit. We pray these things in your name for our good and for your glory. Amen.